The really important uncertainties around climate and climate policy actually have to do with the investment choices and performance of technologies and the whole ecosystem of controlling emissions and increasingly, frankly, the ecosystem about responding to the climate impacts. Those are the areas where the logic of experimentalism that Chuck and I talk about in, in this book. Welcome to Energy 360 from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we start looking ahead to the upcoming climate meetings, COP27, starting in November in Egypt. These meetings draw thousands of climate scientists, negotiators, and policymakers for an annual assessment of where the world stands on its climate commitments. But before we get there, we wanted to know how things have changed since previous COPs. To do this, Joseph Mikett talks with David Victor. David is a leading expert on climate change, decarbonization efforts, and the author with Charles Sable of Fixing the Climate, Strategies for an Uncertain World, a highly useful and readable book on how to build on decentralized problem-solving practices from government, business, and civil society leaders. I'll turn it over to Joseph to get the conversation with David started. David, I'm really glad you're here today. I want to talk about your book. I want to talk about COP, but I really want to start by diving in and asking you to explain what do people misunderstand about the success of the Montreal Protocol? Well, Joseph, it's really terrific to be with you and terrific to be an affiliate of the CSIS program. I think there's a conventional wisdom that has emerged over the over the Montreal Protocol and that informed the Kyoto Protocol and informed climate change diplomacy for a long time. And that conventional wisdom hasn't really been tested with data until we in this book, new book, Fixing the Climate, Chuck Sable and I, as part of the set piece for the book, went back and looked at the original studies and what explains really the success of the Montreal Protocol. It's by, by far the most successful international atmospheric air pollution a treaty system uh, in, in human history. And I think people look at it and come to the conclusion, well, you know, that was easy because we came up with the substitutes for ozone depleting substances quickly. The industry put them into place. They made money by doing that. And then boom, we solved the problem. And by that logic, you learn that that model on the one hand is not directly relevant for climate change because the solutions seem to be not trivial and cheap. And also, a lot of people have taken the treaty framework of the Montreal Protocol and said, well, that had targets and timetables, very clear guidance, told everybody what to do. The scientists drove the process and they told the firms what to do. And that by doing that, you then sent a very clear, incredible signal to business and they needed to get going on the problem. And so and by that logic, what you should do to solve the climate change problem is set clear targets and timetables, make them legally binding, have the scientists drive the ship, and, and then boom, we, we're going to get solutions. Maybe it take longer in the case of climate than in the case of the ozone layer. turns out that all that history is wrong. And when you go back and look at what people really knew at the time, September of 1987, when the, the first draft of the Montreal Protocol was signed and subsequently was amended and adjusted many times every couple of years, it's been, it's been altered in its content. Uh, September of 1987 is when we knew there was an ozone hole. We didn't actually know what was causing the ozone hole. The key flights of the converted U-2 spy plane that went into the ozone hole to find out, to, to find the signature of ozone depleting substances as the cause, those flights actually happened a month later and the data weren't known until after that. Um, but people knew enough to know that this was directionally wrong and that more or less, if you wanted to stop ozone depletion, you had to eliminate these chlorofluorocarbons and halons and other ozone depleting substances, ODS. And they had no idea how to do that. They knew that the goals had to be ambitious. They had some ideas about some possible alternatives. The United States, Sweden, a couple of other countries had already banned the use of chlorofluorocarbon spray cans. So we knew that there were substitutes in spray cans, but we didn't know what, you know, for, for example, for blowing foams and all kinds of other substances, we didn't know what the alternatives would be. And so 
the initial goals were set at a 50% cut in consumption of these substances. And then those goals were adjustable based on the experience. And so if it turned out to be harder, you could get an exemption, at least a time-limited exemption for those goals for particular applications. And then a whole process of expert committees where business was invited in and experts from government were invited in. Uh, businesses were actually encouraged to collaborate. You know, We often think collaboration is bad news. We have antitrust laws and so on. Antitrust laws in the United States were temporarily suspended for purposes of industrial collaboration to search for solutions. And then it turned out that some of the solutions were easier to find than others. But the search process itself was really interesting because some of the some of the obvious things to look for, like direct alternatives to chlorofluorocarbons, just drop-in replacements, that's one place to look. But then there were other ways, for example, cleaning circuit boards, which was a major use of chlorofluorocarbons. There were other ways of cleaning circuit boards using other kinds of chemicals or other kinds of processes that, that didn't need any cleaning at all. And that's ended up being the solution that carried the day with different kinds of firms. And so when Chuck and I wrote this book, we took a step back from that process and said, well, what should the world really learn from the experience of the Montreal Protocol? And what they should learn is that what the treaty system did is it made a credible direction of travel and then got business to, to experiment. We, the theory of change that we advance in the book is experimentalism or experimental governance, we, we, we call it, which is the idea that often societies are highly motivated to solve a problem, but nobody really knows what to do. And so you you have to run experiments and then crucially have to build institutions that can learn quickly which experiments are working and which experiments aren't working. And that's just from in terms of institutional design and the, and the lawyers, the international lawyers, that's one of the most important lessons from the Montreal Protocol that's been lost in the whole climate process, which is that experimentalism helped identify alternatives. But without the institutions of the Montreal Protocol, technical options committees, and scientific committees, and technical committees, all kinds of committees that involved business and folks in the front lines, without those committees and that, that process of actively reviewing the experiments, we couldn't have learned how to adjust the goals. And so that's the key lesson. And one of the lessons that we then carry through the book to show how you would rethink the climate change problem, design better institutions, institutions that be more effective than what we've designed through the COP process, for example. So let me ask you just one detail on the timescale, right? Because I'm interested why you think the climate policy discussion has whiffed on the major lesson, the major lessons of the Montreal Protocol. So 1987, you signed the protocol. These institutions that you described, the sort of process of experimentation does have to take some time, right? But by 1992, you've got the UNFCCC being established and the sort of the fighting of the greenhouse effect with the White House effect. So like, why did that whiff happen? Like, it's not clear to me that we would have learned all of the lessons of success by 1992. And certainly not by 1998 and the establishment of the Kyoto Protocol, et cetera. Yeah. So I think it happened for a variety of reasons. One is there's no question that the climate problem was much more contentious right from the beginning and therefore much more quickly put into a forum that treated experimentalism and, and other ideas with as a degree of toxicity. So it's informative to see that the Montreal Protocol was driven by a handful of mainly industrialized countries, along with Egypt, because that's where Mostafa Tolbo, the head of UNEP, came from, and, and Mexico, in part because that's where my former colleague, the late Mario Molina, came from, as the Mexican government was very heavily involved and interested in this, but mainly industrialized countries initially that paid the extra costs in the developing countries and did a lot of work. And so you had a relatively small group of countries that treated this as a, they weren't using this language, but treated this as an experimental problem. And they had already begun experimenting at home. I used the example of the United States ban on, on chlorofluorocarbons and spray cans, a few other bans like that. And so that was the Montreal Protocol. When climate came along, everybody knew that there would be much more at stake 
formally it got moved into the UN General Assembly. The UN General Assembly is actually the group that, that formally convened what became the Framework Convention on Climate Change. That meant you had many more countries at the table, many more diverse interests at the table and consensus decision making. And all that makes it very, very difficult. And so I do think that there was a vacuum of ideas, though. I think that a, a lot of folks thought climate was a really serious problem, true indeed, and that therefore we needed to set really ambitious goals and push as hard as possible with the targets and timetables and not really take this uncertainty seriously. A huge amount of this book is actually about uncertainty. It's about how firms manage investment under conditions of uncertainty where they don't know what the future is, but they need they know they've got to be in the future lest they be um, foot dragging and, and caught in the past and then extinguished. And so throughout the entire history of the climate debate, there's been a, a wariness about talking about uncertainty and a wariness about the unknown and this kind of make-believe world where we know how to set the goals and the targets. And there was a big push, as you know, back in the Framework Convention on Climate Change to set targets and timetables, famous Article 4.2, which is a long, long sentence, no punctuation, not entirely clear what it said, but it kind of said, let's reduce our emissions. But there was all this focus on the emissions, which governments don't control. What governments do control is programs and experimentation and effort and things like that. And, and I have to say that if you go back and, and ask yourself, what were the really big wrong turns in the early history? One of the most important wrong turns was the rejection of the idea of what was called at the time pledge and review. The Japanese government, some parts of the US, a few others, I was a huge fan of this idea. Instead of designing the treaty around the framework convention on climate change around targets and timetables for emissions, which governments don't control, they don't control the output. That varies from lots of different factors. Let's agree on effort. Let's put out schedules of here are all the things we're going to do. And then let's check up on each other every once in a while. And it was called pledge and review. And that, in fact, is exactly more or less exactly where we are now with Paris 30 years later, having gone through the just dead end, this just intellectual cul-de-sac of the Kyoto Protocol and targets and timetables as if you could force binding targets and timetables on countries if they became inconvenient and so on. That rejection happened in the early 1990s and really sent us down a wrong track that we never recovered from for about 20 years. Well, I think this concept of experimental governance is really interesting. And I want you to, to help our audience understand a little bit more its contours. But to me, it seems like this book is asking a question like, how do you get people to do hard stuff, right? And how do you how do you get them to do that when the like the risk and reward balance is very hard to predict, which is the uncertainty I think you're invoking. So help us understand like what exactly is experimental governance? We've seen an example, but why does experimental governance as a process allow you to break through some of the challenges that have prevented more faster action against climate change. Yeah, so so I think you're exactly right. This is unpacking the really micro logic behind how you get people to do hard stuff. And in particular, how you get firms, which, which tend to control most, at least in the Western world, tend to control most of the investment and the direction of investment. So you're trying to get private sector actors to do a bunch of stuff that's in the public interest but is risky and, and no sane actor is gonna go off and do this on their own unless there's some way to manage some of those risks and so on. And then obviously there's, there's a lot of other kinds of actors in the ecosystem. You have state-owned enterprises, I think um, one, one blind spot that Americans often have in studying the energy business is they don't recognize how much of the world's energy business outside of the West is, is actually controlled by state-owned firms, oil companies, electric companies, and so on. And so the, those actors, and they have different kinds of objectives, but the core problem remains 
how do you deal with these kinds of existential risks? You know, bet the company run by adults and, and uh, accountable to their shareholders aren't going to do. So there are more or less kind of four key steps in the logic here, in the logic of experimentalism. One is the motivation. What motivates a firm when a government, frankly, to go off and search for alternatives? And we use a term called the penalty default. It comes from contract law. And it's, it's think of this as an existential consequence for not making an effort. And so you don't know whether your effort's going to work or not. But if you drag your feet and don't make any effort at all, you're going to you get severely punished because you'll lose your license to operate, for example. You'll, if you're a government, you get severely punished by being voted out of office. You see this right now in the oil and gas industry, especially in Europe. Um, where you've got all the leading oil and gas companies in Europe, you know, in various ways, <clears throat> trying to figure out what life is like in the low carbon world. And they can't just keep doing the same stuff they were doing in the past. You know, they can do it for a while and make a ton of money, especially right now, but they've got to change and they're running all these experiments. And you see that. And it's because the threat to them, the license to operate to them, that threat is highly credible in Europe. And it's becoming credible in the United States. So what happened with Exxon and their so this is where you see like an example of an experiment is one company says, we're going to diversify. We're going to be an energy services company. We're going to generate renewable power. We're going to run recharging stations for electric vehicles, et cetera. And then you've got another, which says we're doubling down on our ability to do high-end chemistry in refinery-like settings, and we're going to sell clean fuels to a market we believe is there. And th those, those are like, a, that's a course example of an experimental approach. And, and I think what's interesting is that those experiments, if the incentive to the firm were a kind of conventional, you know, regulatory incentive or a carbon tax at the margin or whatever, like something like that, they would treat that as a compliance problem. What do we need to do to comply with the rules? But when the penalty is this severe and this conditional upon effort, then you treat it as an existential question. And then it's corporate strategy and board level, you know, redirecting the whole company. And Joseph, I think to your point, I mean, what's exciting about the oil and gas industry here is that there are all these different models. You know, you've got some companies like Total becoming electric companies in part. You've got others doing clean fuels. You've got Equinor leading this Northern Lights project, gigantic CCS project in the North Sea. You've got all kinds of other models that are emerging. And I think a lot of companies are asking themselves, as they should, what are we good at doing that's consistent with a low carbon world? And what a little bit like Clay Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma, what are we stuck doing right now in the high carbon world and we're not going to be very good at shifting away from in the, in the lower carbon world? And, and I think that's the metaphor for thinking about how this existential incentive creates uh, new information and experimentation. Because the opposite, which seems to be the, the inference I draw from your book, is that existential uncertainty causes people to freeze otherwise, right? Exactly. And, and the argument that Chuck and I make in the book is, is that they don't freeze that they actually go into a panic, but they go into a panic, which is which drives the willingness to reallocate capital and major amounts of capital into search. And so that's the first step is this is this incentive. And then you see search. And, and to me, was it, a lot of people have called this bottom upism because you decentralize the search process has to be decentralized. You've got lots of different firms, some operating in consortia, some operating on their own, often going to government and getting help. So you've got the firm itself is leading the search process, but they need help managing the risk. It, it's to me, it's been interesting to see how this book hopefully has helped break down some of the old silos between the left and the right 
because this is a vision that has a big role for government, but a very different role for government. Has to, government has to be smarter, more nimble. Often the private sector has to lead the search process, but government's in there to help manage risk. And think of this as industrial policy, but not our grandfather's industrial policy. And so it's, it doesn't fit into the box of the left. Or, or the right. So you've got this decentralized search process that generates a lot of information. And then you've got a centralized review mechanism or peer review mechanism, often done by peer review. It's very interesting because and we in academics call think of peer review as you send the paper in and then send an anonymous person says mean things about you. And then hopefully you survive the peer review process. In this case, what has to be done through peer review because Nobody else, no other group of industrial experts or government experts knows enough to figure out what's working and what's not working. So you've got this centralized peer review process that helps socialize the knowledge of which experiments have worked, which of them have failed, and so on. And then finally, adjustment of the goals and the targets. And that's actually how Montreal worked, is that you had decentralized search for lots of solutions move very quickly, centralized review mechanisms led by experts and people connected to industry and the frontier, and then adjustment of the goals, often ratcheting tighter, sometimes ratcheting looser. And one of the things we do in the book, I have last comment on this kind of overall macro view. One of the things we do in the book is a retelling of the iconic success stories of environmental regulation policy all around the world, from the Brazilian Amazon to California Air Resources Board controlling air pollution to water pollution in Ireland, retelling some of the major success stories through this lens and saying that actually we've been doing, society has been doing experimentalism, just not with the language, for a long, long time. And the pattern is the same. Air pollution in California, for example, you have these very strict goals in the 1990s. And then the industry, not some of the industry fought back. Other parts of the industry broke and actually worked with California's regulators. So that helped the regulators understand what the frontier of technical knowledge was and how to adjust that and how to adjust the regulations in light of the frontier. And that co-evolution explains how California really cleared up the air. That's the vision of how society solves these kinds of problems. Thinking about this challenge, let me dwell on the firm level for just a minute. So you can talk to an executive from an oil and gas company or from an energy company or an industrial and they'll say, hey, if we had a carbon price at a certain level, we could solve this problem, right? I, it's a finance issue and it's a risk management issue for us, but the right incentives in the right places, we'd be good to go. How do you respond to that concept given the ideas you've developed? So we went and did that. <laughs> we went and looked at a whole bunch of cases and talked to these people. For me, one of the most iconic examples is the Northern Lights project in the North Sea. This is one of the most interesting carbon capture and storage CCS projects in the world today. Industrial sources all around the North Sea um, being collected, liquefied, put on ships, taken to Norway, injected underground. It's a joint venture between Equinor, former Statoil, Total and Shell, really led by Equinor. And led by Equinor because they have a lot of expertise in, in downhole. They've been doing carbon capture and, and storage on the, on the Sleipner field for 10 years, a million tons a year, more or less, monitoring it, some other fields as well. And they their vision of the future is a vision where decarbonization happens, the world shifts to more natural gas, and then eventually away from all that stuff. There's a lot of offshore wind. They're good at platforms. There's a lot of carbon capture and storage. They're good at downhole and system integrity. And that's a world where they can thrive. That's their vision. Will they be right? I have no idea. Nobody really knows, but you got to test it out. So they're out testing it out. So here you are in Norway, led by all these friendly Norwegians and Equinor. And you know, whenever you go around the world and find somebody doing something great for the planet, they're often Norwegian. They're such nice people and, and so generous. So here you are in an ideal circumstance for, for your scenario, Joseph, which is they've got a carbon price. 
Like the company should just go ahead and do it. And then you look at it, they could not do final investment decision, FID on that project, which they did in the middle of pandemic, in the middle of complete turmoil in their industry when nobody else would do FID on a project like this. They did it. And the key for them was a little bit the consortium with the other oil companies and mainly the credible commitment from the Norwegian government and the EU, mainly the Norwegian government to help manage the, the capital investment risk. And so here you are in a, in a country that's done everything right, the highest offshore carbon tax in the world, and the market incentives by themselves can't induce adequate experimentation. And some of this is familiar, you know, that Adam Jaffe and Rob Stevens and others have this terrific paper about the twin market failures in climate. And one of them is a public goods failure, that yes. this new knowledge is a public good. And so the firm can't justify doing this. And so in some sense, you're correcting a market failure, but you're not correcting it with the carbon tax mechanism and so on. You're correcting it with government directly intervening. And then eventually, the technologies will get mature enough and we'll know enough about what the options are that we can use market-based instruments down the road. You see that in the case of market-based and the cap and trade system in Europe with regard to electric power, where it helps firms optimize across known choices. But for almost all the real challenges of deep decarbonization, the challenge today is not optimization across known choices. It's filling out the menu of known choices. And this is where experimentalism really is. is and, you know, we talk a lot in the climate community about stranded assets. Is it appropriate to think that oftentimes firms are facing a question of, we were going to run this experiment. If it doesn't work financially or it doesn't scale into the market, we're going to be left with a stranded asset on the solution side, as opposed to like fossil infrastructure that's lived too long. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and the role of the state here is to do two things. One, which we've already been talking about, which is to help the firm at least manage and understand and contain risk so that when you when the when the green eye shades people do out the financial analysis and they do the stress test on the project, the project doesn't have a high probability of being just a financial catastrophe. So so that's one thing that government does. The other thing they do, which is possibly as important or more important, is that when a firm is doing a project like this and it thinks this is a one-off project, that there's going to be no future, but they're just doing this project and you know, government's paying them a bunch of money to go do it and then we'll you know, do the project and go to the bar. If you do a project as a one-of-a-kind project, the whole mindset of the project is different from what you want to create when you're really experimenting for scaling. Because you do things once, you don't think about institutionalizing the knowledge, you don't think about, okay, well, I'm doing it this way this time, but next time I'll do it that way, and that'll help me learn and improve costs and so on. And then you even sometimes start building the next project while you're finishing the first project. And so you internalize learning and scaling and improvement because you're going from N equals one to N equals 10, and that's a business that you're building. And one of the most important roles of this, and the United States does this particularly well, I think, with the loan program, the DOE loan program office, which I think is a, a, a lesser sung but really important part of the way we do experimentalism in the United States uh, in energy, is, is that you're creating this different mindset where firms want to build the new industry. And when they want to build the new industry, they, they learn faster how to improve the technology, and they also become political advocates for the new technology. And so what you're doing is you're taking technological change and in embedding in it political change. And so you go from a world where the incumbents all hate change to a world where enough of the incumbents want something to happen that when that they lobby for it. And you saw this in the Inflation Reduction Act is that you had all kinds of incumbents, electric power industry and so on, they were lobbying for the Inflation Reduction Act because the Inflation Reduction Act 
was paying them to do things that they knew how to do. Right. And so they wanted it to happen. And so that's really transformed the politics. It happened earlier in Europe, but it's really transforming the politics and taking what looked like a just politically daunting problem and turning into one that's less daunting and over time actually scaled itself. Yeah. So, but part of, I mean, if you're, if you're taking the experimentalist model and fully exploiting it, you're going to have a lot of failures. Do you have a favorite failure in climate learning? What would you even call that process? Like an initiative that we learned a lot from, but, but we have to admit is a, has been a complete failure. I think the breeder reactor program in the United States, which went, ran too long. is a good example of that. I think the um, synthetic fuels corporation, John Deutsch has written some very thoughtful things about the Sinfuels Corporation. And yeah, we didn't quite learn fast enough. And that was not a climate policy. That was an energy security policy. But it's actually impressive that we learned and we were able to pull the plug on something that clearly at the time was a dog, partly because the environment changed, the need for that solution to the energy security problem changed, partly because the technology didn't scale um, properly. And frankly, I think Cylinder is an interesting example. You know, Cylinder is always used as a bad kid on the block. But at the time, there was enough plausibility with the view that we would be in a silicon scarce world that the technology cylinder was going to advance would be valuable. Probably it was not smart to take the president there. Probably we went two or three quarters longer with the support for the cylinder than we should have. Okay. But when you take a step back, you're trying to place bets. And we actually possibly don't have enough failures. I'm a little concerned that the loan program office and in particular ARPA-E may not actually be taking enough risk that we do a lot to celebrate, you know, in the case of RPE, exits and successful commercialization and monetization of these ideas and so on. And all that's wonderful. But it tells me that we might not be taking enough risk. We might not have enough failures. And the overall performance of the loan program, including the Slendra, the overall performance of the loan program has been phenomenal. And, and it helped create Tesla, among other things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, like what I think is really, really compelling about this book is that it, it offers a way to think about the sort of risk aversion that seems to pervade climate stuff and, and actions against climate change, right? Or, or taking action against climate change. Yeah. And I think a lot of the climate folks think of when you say uncertainty in climate, they all instinctively think we're talking about the science. And my read of the science, I mean, sitting on the science, climate science institution, the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, my read of the science is, of course, science has been robust for a long time. There's actually a lot of uncertainty about the impacts. That's, that's the area where uncertainty is very large. But the logic that you take from that uncertainty is actually we need to be doing more on the climate change problem because the tails are longer and fatter than people originally thought, and those risks are a significant problem. And so that motivates more action, should motivate more action rather than less action. But the really important uncertainties around climate and climate policy actually have to do with the investment choices and performance of technologies and the whole ecosystem of controlling emissions and increasingly, frankly, the ecosystem about responding to the climate impacts. Those are the areas where the logic of experimentalism that Chuck and I talk about in, in this book, where that logic can be, I think, most helpful. Diffusion of learning becomes an important part of this process, I think, right? So in Montreal, your book talks about formalized institutions that sat under the Montreal Protocol that allowed firms to learn from each other. In a world with more experimental governance, who are the important diffusers of knowledge? Is it the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative? Is it McKinsey and Boston Consulting? Is it new institutions that we don't have yet that will condition sort of government support and some measure of de-risking with participation in, in institutions of knowledge diffusion? Well, it's a great question. My take is that the consulting world helps move lessons around inside the industry, and that plays a partial role in learning. 
but it, do, it doesn't play a central role in bringing those lessons back into the public institutions, into the goal setting process and treaties and things like that. The way in Montreal, there was a formal set of committees, a set of institutions that were like a blend of the oil and gas climate initiative and McKinsey and kind of classic technical options review that's done in governments all the time. The National Academy of Sciences helps do it for the United States and, and so on. It's kind of blend of all those. And, and the, those are the institutions that could be very important. Right now, we don't see a lot of those in the climate space. We see some that are too big to work. Almost all the institutions connected to the conference of parties process, for example, is are too big to work because they operate with consensus across all the members, and that's a recipe for pablum. Some of them are very focused on particular industries, and they could end up actually scaling and being very helpful. You mentioned the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative. I'm a big fan of what they've been doing, uh, both their investment arm and their effort to kind of get the industry to talk more about what are reasonable goals. I think the place where they've been most conspicuous and most valuable are, is around methane emissions. The oil and gas industry wants to be relevant in particular, the gas industry wants to be relevant for the long term. It's got to find a way to go to zero as quickly as possible. And that means not just kind of general monitoring, but full system, full pad monitoring, full disclosure. I'm on the advisory council of a B Corp called Project Canary, which is doing that at oil and gas pads because we want to have full control of our molecules and, and therefore be able to deliver natural gas with zero fugitive methane emissions, be able to do that into LNG be able to do that eventually into hydrogen, a variety of other applications, that if gas is going to have a future here, you've got to deal with that problem. So OGCI has played a very helpful role inside the industry. But what always happens in these institutions is they get big. And then as they get big, it's harder for them to be strategic. And in particular, it's harder for them to deal with dissenting views and so on. So I understand almost sociologically why institutions, when they're successful, get bigger. My advice has always been keep the institutions as small as possible to be effective and keep them as focused as possible on the problem that's at hand. And, and so I don't know if OGCI is, is at the point there, but I, I think what we're seeing is in every industry, institutions emerging, or at least nascent institutions emerging that are the places where the leaders, the State Department calls this First Movers Coalition, other governments have other names for this. We used to call them coalitions of the willing, and we used that term for the second trip to Iraq, didn't go so well, so we stopped using that term. But that's the logic is you have highly motivated actors and think of it as like a club. Bill Norris has this terrific work that he's been doing on, on clubs. Think of it as kind of a little less of a club with, with the huge trade barriers. It has to be a role for trade, it has to be a role for investment incentives, but it's a, it's a club of highly motivated, willing actors who are working together both to run the experiments, but then also to figure out what's, what's working. And, and I think that's the area where I'm most concerned about the evolution of climate change cooperation and diplomacy is that we don't see that really emerging enough and fast enough in all the major sectors. It's gonna to have to be done sector by sector. You can't have a general review mechanism for all kinds of industrial decarbonization. What you do in steel is different from plastics and different yet again from aviation. Well, and what's interesting is like, we sort of naturally do that in the analyst community, right? We sort of bin emission sectors like transportation emissions, electricity, industry, and then you, you start talking about industrial emissions, you talk, chemicals, steel, glass, but we, you know, we don't really use the institutions that govern or represent those different sectors, particularly effectively for this experimental governance task, like that the one that you described. Yeah. And, and indeed the institutions that exist that are easy to use that are off the shelf are almost always too big. So Stefan Kalbeckin and I have a paper in nature uh, three or four weeks ago that 
looked at this, looked at what's going on in aviation. So aviation's rising 3% per year, extremely important sector. And the aviation industry, we argued in the paper, has been thinking about the climate change problem possibly in the wrong way. They've been thinking about the carbon dioxide problem. When there's some evidence to suggest that in addition to carbon dioxide, you've got contrail cirrus and contrail cirrus could have a big impact. Well, if contrail cirrus is your problem, not only is carbon dioxide, then your response strategies have to be totally different. And so you want to you diversify search. You want to look at a wider range of options. And so by the logic in the book that Chuck and I wrote, you want to, the industry needs to, to run those experiments and learn quickly. Well, the International Civil Aviation Organization, ICAO, which is a global consensus-oriented, more or less consensus-oriented institution, they're not going to do that. What are they doing? They're running a giant emissions trading program called Corsia, which is basically designed to create, to use carbon offsets whenever possible. The quality of the offsets is just garbage. And so they're all out pretending that they're doing something about the problem when in reality they're not, maybe making the problem worse and not really being the engine of experimentalism and learning. And so that has to happen in smaller groups. The EU seems to be playing that role in aviation to some degree, partly because I'm pushing hard on Airbus and Boeing, but especially on Airbus. And, and But the institutions are still nascent. And, and that more work on sector by sector of this type would be really, really helpful. You mentioned Nordhaus's idea of climate clubs, because part of this argument is that it's neither the stick nor the carrot that really is going to help solve this problem, but their iterative use. And trade mechanisms are going to be one of the things that should play a big role when you think about countries working together to, to make experiments. Give us a little bit of detail on what you mean. Like, What is a path to climate clubs or preferential trade agreements that doesn't create trade conflict? The IRA has a ton of measures for domesticating supply chains or working with free trade agreement countries, and, and it is causing real anxiety and anger with U.S. trading partners. So what is the path that creates opportunity but doesn't take back the progress of, of globalization? Well, first, let me talk about the anxiety because I think it's well-placed. You know, I'm a globalist at heart. You know, not irresponsible globalism, but globalism has generated massive benefits. Look at Greg Nemen has this terrific book called How Solar Got Cheap. It has a website with it and so on. And, you know, the solar story is what we're trying to replicate, um, which is you have early investments in new technologies and ideas, initially in Japan, the United States, and that helps bring down the cost. Then it moves to Germany and speaks German and the German Energiewende and German ratepayers, bless their hearts help bring down the cost further by paying a boatload of money for solar. And then a lot of installations, a lot of learning. Then it moves to, to China with the manufacturing revolution where you have a kind of active industrial policy to help create new manufacturing firms and then back off and let those firms compete. A very nimble and smart Chinese industrial policy at the time, similar to the German industrial policy. And so, and then the whole world has benefited from that. And so I'm very, very concerned about the you know, friend shoring, onshoring, near shoring, whatever the variant of shoring is called. I'm very concerned about the use of trade measures, not because the logic of using trade measures is not appropriate, but because the trade measures always end up commingling with protectionism. And so it's hard to kind of keep that at bay, look no further than the solar tariffs, which have been hard to un undo and so on. So I think those concerns are, are serious. And that's one of the reasons why I've been wary about a kind of the hardcore club idea, which is big tariff walls. You know, we really care about climate. We're going to do it that way. I get why that would be a priority, but I think the collateral damage to the WTO and the trading system, that collateral damage is not worth it. And that would actually be very harmful in particular to developing countries, which have benefited so much from globalization, you know, not exclusively. 
So just as a kind of levels, I think the concerns there are actually, so what does a path forward look like here? The EU-US clean steel and aluminum deal is a good example. What you're doing is creating guarantees of market access for successful innovation around a technology, a cluster of technologies that could, in this case, make possible to produce um, cleaner steel and, and aluminum. That's an interesting example. You could see something similar around what the Norwegian government tried originally, actually, in Brazil. It wasn't implemented that well, where you do very large amounts of money to help improve the quality of land use management, and then in exchange for that, have what became partial pledges of market access for Brazilian export products. What you're trying to do is create incentives for a club that benefits from the cooperation and has enough of a trade wall or investment wall around it that outsiders want to be in the club. Chuck and I call these open plurilateral agreements. It's a kind of concept that's emerged through the World Trade Organization where you have clubs of first movers that want to lower tariffs and, and create trading zones around new technologies and ideas. And, that, and it's an open club. So if you meet the standards, then you're in the club. And I think that's the right kind of logic. And that is the way through the problem here, which is it doesn't solve the, the protectionist pressures and so on, but it right out of the blocks lowers those threats and makes it more of an expanding club arrangement as opposed to a punitive club arrangement. To show my ignorance, when I was first reading about the battery mineral supply chain subsidies in the IRA, which preference free trade agreement countries or mineral supply chains that run through free trade agreement countries, there's actually a real problem, right? Because something like 70, 80% of anodes and cathodes are made in China. The re remainder are mostly made in Korea and Japan, about 50-50 between the two. We have a free trade agreement with Korea, not with Japan. Japan's an important ally and trading partner. And I think, oh, immediately, like, this is the path to a free trade agreement with Japan. 15 minutes of Wikipedia research convinces me that <laughs> that's probably not going to be the outcome. But something that was more sectorally focused might actually work. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And, you know, with the caveat that trade policy right now is is seriously whacked and the difficulty of undoing the solar tariffs is is an example of that. And then all these other special interests kind of flood in and so on. Um, it could actually be that the CHIPS Act ends up being very, very important for climate because it, some of the technologies there will spill over into, into things that we care about in climate change, including you know, advanced control systems and obviously manufacturing, solid state manufacturing and, and, and so on. And it, it could be that that helps create a little more confidence around a kind of an openness to global markets that in which American firms do better. But I'm really, really concerned about this. Um, you mentioned Korea along the way. I do think the role that the U.S.-Korean relationship could play in these advanced technologies around batteries in particular, but a handful of others with, with Korean manufacturing is just extraordinary. That role is underappreciated. We have a tendency to focus a lot on Japan, and we should. But in a world where we're, we remain perennially wary of China and vice versa, and that seems to be the world that we're in, I think it's a dangerous world. I think the scientific community needs to do more work across the borders to kind of keep the channels open. Ranger Morgan, Valerie Corpus, and I have a piece in Issues in Science and Technology making exactly that argument, kind of laying out a strategy for doing that. But in that world, the U.S.-Korea relationship remain, it would become much more important, and I think we have not paid enough attention to it. Given that we're recording right before the start of COP27, I think it's worth hearing your preview of those negotiations and your evaluation of the COP process generally under the framework that you've developed. And it, 
In particular, at COP26, we saw a lot of coalitions of the willing arise. The First Movers Coalition, which sort of sits uncomfortably at the State Department. But when you're inventing new institutions, that maybe is not super crazy. Uh, you've got the Net, Net Zero Banking Alliance. You've got a variety of sort of voluntary mechanisms for approaching the different parts of this problem that could do experimentation. So what's your read on COP27? And are we starting to see ex experimental governance arise out of those conversations, at least the things on the side, if not the formal process itself? Things on the side, absolutely. You know, I was pretty dark on most of the history of the cli of climate diplomacy. I thought they just sent themselves down the wrong track. The Framework Convention on Climate Change might have evolved in hopeful ways, didn't. Pleasure and review ideas cratered. Along came targets and timetables. At, and I've been very consistent. I wrote an article in Nature in 1990. Five, I think it was, saying this whole targets and timetables direction with Julian Salt is just going to end in disaster, and here's a different way of doing it, and so on. We were very proud of ourselves. It was extremely well-researched work, and so on, and totally irrelevant from the policy debate. Launched off a cliff, and then they were like the Wiley Coyote, and that was Kyoto. And finally, in Copenhagen, the space opened. 2009, failure in Copenhagen, space opened for new ideas, and those new ideas in Paris. And I overall am pretty optimistic about the Paris arrangement, not because... It's doing all kinds of consensus global diplomacy. I think most of that stuff is, is frankly become noise, but because it's an umbrella under which First Movers Coalition, all kinds of other things can happen and countries can figure out what they offer the world. And that's the pledges, the nationally determined contributions. There's still too much obsession with the targets and timetables and not enough attention to action, to pledges, to of real effort and so on, and to checking up on that. But a lot of that can't, the checking up can't be done in a global consensus institution. It has to be done in smaller groups. And those groups are kind of beginning to emerge. And mission innovation is a place where that's that's emerged around some new technologies. First Movers Coalition, some of these industrial partnerships you know, on, on electric vehicles, on aviation is actually now emerging, steel, cement. We're seeing, starting to see this. And so all of that is encouraging. I thought COP26 in Glasgow was a big success because of all this activity on the on, on the side. And there's a piece that's coming out right now in, in foreign affairs, a whole group of us kind of articulating, actually using COP26 as a way of showing what the new theory of change is, which is much more work in smaller groups, sector by sector, with firms and governments that are highly motivated running experiments and, and, and so on. And, and Chuck and I continue to write various pieces that apply that logic from our book. So in that sense, I think this is good news. I, I am worried about a couple of things in COP27 in Egypt. I'm worried that one of the things that's really important to happen through the COP process is that people need to feel the whole thing is legitimate, that the, that the goals are right, and that more or less everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. And then you can't plan that by some kind of global committee that operates by consensus. You have to work in smaller groups. One of the places where it's not on track is in the pledges that have been made to developing countries. And you know, like them or not like them, $100 billion a year of new funds for developing countries that was not been delivered, depending on how you count, maybe only 80% of it's been delivered or being delivered. And, and the developing countries left Glasgow kind of barely happy with the outcome and barely agreeable to that. That kind of fissure could really blow up diplomatically in Egypt. And if it does, I think one of the big challenges is going to be for the leading countries, Europe and the United States and others, to, to say, okay, well, this, you know, we didn't have diplomatic agreement as we didn't in Copenhagen in 2009, but here's all the other stuff we're doing. And here's why it's credible. And that's going to be particularly important for the United States because even with all the new spending programs, 
our pledge of cutting emissions 50 to 52 percent was never achievable in my view and now we really know it's not achievable maybe we'll get to 40 percent and so people are focused too much on that and not enough on the effort and 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 that's keeping the momentum in the face of diplomatic headwinds is going to be a big challenge well this to me is an example of like the challenge of having institutions learn right part of this experimental governance process is learning what works and what doesn't and i don't envy you the task of convincing that portion of the global diplomatic community that is focused on climate that this experiment is not working to the effect that they want and they need to we need to have a different approach part of the challenge seems to be if i can go out on a limb that it's really hard to do experimentation by consensus, right? That what you need are people who are willing to be on the vanguard, who are willing to take risks, be they in a firm, be they in a government. And a consensus model will always sort of give you a lowest common denominator for, for risk tolerance. So can existing climate institutions survive the change in framework that you envision? I think they can if they understand, if people, if enough people understand what their role is, which is why this piece in foreign affairs is trying to articulate what the theory of change is and what the role of the COP process is in that. We recognize that a lot of the COP stuff is noise, but some parts of it is really important, particularly around these capacity building programs for the emerging economies. You know, you have to find, we have to find a way that action on climate doesn't leave them behind. And that was another key lesson from the Montreal Protocol is that the funding program, possibly the most successful international environmental fund of all of history, it's a multilateral fund, the MLF, connected to the Montreal Protocol. What it did is it, it didn't just pay the developing countries the extra cost. It helped them build the capacity to understand in government and then in business what the frontier was. And so then you had all these countries, we talk a little bit about Vietnam in the book, countries that wanted, didn't want to just kind of use the old technology and pay the extra cost of cleaning it up a bit, but wanted to go right to the new technological frontier. And you see that now happening in the case of the kinds of technologies that be important for climate. Look at the Indian renewable energy, solar program in particular is a great example. And so this role for the diplomatic process and the funds associated with the diplomatic process is really, really important. And so I think we need to put more emphasis on getting that stuff right and spend less time wrangling. Debating timetables. Yeah. So like just energy transition partnerships, like the one that the G7 signed with South Africa in the lead up to COP, are those an example of the kind of experimentation that we should be doing, right? How do you align government institutions in situ with international finance tools, the sort of capacity that developed countries have for energy systems planning and bringing in newest technology, like, are those examples of the kinds of institutional development we should be thinking about? Yeah, and some of them will fail. I, I can't, I don't know whether the South African arrangement is going to be successful or a failure. There's a lot of headwinds in South Africa for, for you know, reasons of the way the power industry is structured there and so on. But it's a really interesting example because that particular um, alliance is not only helping to build the new energy technologies, but it's also actively trying to deal with the communities that are then hurt by the energy transition. You know, that I think it was Nate Mirabal had that famous essay about roadkill in the information revolution. And there's a similar set of questions about roadkill in the energy transition. People call this the energy transition as if it's you know like some friendly walk in the park where we're all going to be holding hands and loving each other. This is a series of revolutions and the incumbent industries, uh, incumbent technologies, many, if not most of them will get destroyed along the way. And so it's going to be really harmful and disruptive. So you've got that going on. But in addition, you've got, for example, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, EBRD, is running a bunch of projects in Eastern Europe to help shut old coal plants 
and replace the power and help deal with the communities that are affected by that. In the United States, we've had a lot of experiences with that, including coal plants in Native American lands and Native American communities, other kinds of remote where you know, you've got a coal mine or you've got a plant and it's the only employer around, I think Page, Arizona. And some have been successful, some have not been successful, but that whole that whole part of the experimentation is almost as important as the experimentation that pushes the technological frontier. I really enjoyed the book. I always like hearing your insights and um, I'm really glad that you've put the effort in because this is really a thought-provoking new framework that you've developed. Well, thank you very much. And a big thanks to my colleague, Chuck Sable, and he's become a good friend. And we, we it took us eight years to write this book. It's not a long book. It took a long time to write to get the ideas right. And we hope it helps give people a lens for thinking about what we're really trying to do here. Yeah, it certainly made me think twice. Thank you very much. Thanks to David for joining us this week. We always learn so much from his thinking in the energy and climate space. In the show description, I've included links to his book and several of the articles he mentioned. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. As always, follow us on Twitter for updates at CSIS Energy. And thanks for listening. <laughs>